The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Governors, consuls, princes, you have come from the deserts of Egypt, from the mountains of Armenia, from the forests of Gaul and the prairies of Spain. You do not resemble each other, nor do you wear the same clothes, nor sing the same songs, nor worship the same gods. Yet, like a mighty tree with green leaves and black roots, you are the unity which is Rome. Look about you and look at yourselves and see the greatness of Rome. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 24th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So we're joined in studio once again by John Thompson of the Strategic Intelligence Group, and Salim Mansur, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science. Welcome, gentlemen. Donald Trump wants to make America great again. What is it about America that was great? And will making it great again, if such a thing is possible, will that make the rest of the world great again? Will that make Canada great again? I guess, actually, uh, one of the first times I was in Washington as, uh, as an adult, and you wander around Washington and you take a look at the architecture and you suddenly realize that you were both in a city that a lot of the styles of architecture from the Enlightenment. You know, the classical Greco-Roman uh, influences and everything else. But at the same time, it's also an imperial capital. You know, it's the capital of a great power. It bestrides the world like a colossus, like it has for over a hundred years. Uh, and the, the Americans have never actually really quite sorted out who they are. But sometimes they get lost in the, the vision of who they are, and they forget the simple truth. America is, and always has been, a society dedicated to the idea that you can reinvent yourself, that you can become something other than what you were born to be. Uh, and become something else. And I, I think that's actually the point. I mean, Trump has certainly learned how to reinvent himself and has done so frequently. And I think he understands that to his core. And that's what the Americans need to re-embrace. In the last few decades, you know, the, the, this style of, of governance and, and this elite that we've decried it tries to peg people into tiny boxes, put labels on us. That's what multiculturalism is about. And again, these politics of division and ideology and the disparagement of the individual's ability to reinvent themselves and to do something dynamic. And the American, if the Americans can refine that, or again, start to celebrate it more, they can take off. And as they've done before, they can take the world with them. Salim, I'll ask you the same question, but before I do, I just want to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justratemedia.org, subscribe to Just Rate on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5130 kilohertz in North America, 
and on channel 292, 60, 70 kilohertz in Europe and the rest of the world. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and of course, where you can access all of our past broadcasts. So, Salim, the question to you, what's so great about America that Donald Trump has run an entire campaign about making it great again? Well, uh, from from the perspective of Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again, which was his campaign theme, by the way, was a resurrection of Morning in America, Make America Great Again, which was Ronald Reagan 30-plus years ago. And from that angle of perspective. I I see America as the Gulliver tied down by all the wrappings and treads and ropes of the Lilliputians. And it is to cut through all of that and let Gulliver be once again Gulliver, to stand up and be Gulliver. That's a great image. It is. That's perfect. I think it describes it perfectly, that that, uh, America was this once very tall, proud man uh, plying the oceans, comes to Lilliput right. and has been subdued by all these little people. That's right. And, and, and tied down and, 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 and rebuked and, and punished and made to, you know, think small. So that, I think, instinctively, Americans were related to that, I would believe, image in their own ways, uh, and, and we see the result. But stepping back and looking at it in the larger context of... America, uh, uh, now that it's going to be the Donald Trump era America, what does America represent? I think that's the question that you have, and I think that's the question people around the world might want to have. And and as I look at it, you know, uh, here is uh, Donald Trump, again, back to the individual. He's from New York. He's a New Yorker, born in Queens. Well, who was the greatest New Yorker in, in American team, in American trope? I would say it is Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman is the poet of America's democracy. Walt Whitman is the poet of America's republic. You know, what Walt Whitman sang the song about himself, you know, a song of myself. And he said that, you know, in, I'm paraphrasing him, I'm like a sun that keeps bursting out, you know, and planets are born out of me. America has represented, America is the only country, and it is a civilization, it's not simply a country, it's a civilization. It is a child of enlightenment, as John uh, mention America is born in 1776 out of a rebellion and an act preceding all of the discussion that takes place, which is what we have now come to identify as the Enlightenment age. Newton, Locke, Adam Smith. I mean, 1776 was the year of the publication of Wealth and Poverty of Nations, of Adam Smith, the defining book. And America has represented through its writers, through its poets, through its, you know, essays. I, I'm thinking now about, say, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, mentioned Walt Whitman has re- represented the largeness of the human spirit. America is not an ethnicity. America is an idea. Anyone from anywhere, and again, Donald Trump, the New Yorker, and what is the defining uh, a statue of that city is the Statue of Liberty. Arm um, opened up, and you come to America, and you embrace America, and you become an American. And, and this idea, America is also known as American exceptionalism, the idea that America represents value and is the only country 
Only well, you can become un-American if you go against the value. I mean, you know, in the 1950s, House of Un-American Activity or whatever that Committee, was called. Yeah, US, yeah. And, and there was a famous back and forth on this matter with Churchill. And Churchill said, you know, something I don't understand is how you become un-American because you cannot become un-English. Well, that's precisely the point. <laughs> to be an Englishman, to be an Irish, to be a German, that is something that is in your blood. That's sanguinary citizenship. You know, it's not an ideal citizenship. Uh, Much like the distinction with Rome. Rome was the same kind of idea in the sense of not being a race-based um, Precisely. So, you know, you, if you're an Italian, empire. you cannot become anything right. else but be an Anyone Italian. Anyone could become a Roman, and, and it could be a Greek, it could be that anyone. That goes back to Pax Romana period, right? right. Exactly. Yes. I mean, that was the, the Republican I'm idea. I'm proud both that I am a citizen of Rome. Yes. Mm -hmm. Don't that's, touch me. That's right. Exactly. But you see, India, which was the crown jewel of, in, you know, of the British Empire, but the Indians did not become English. You know, I, I am from India, you know, I'm born in India. So, you know, I don't, I'm not an English. But in America, I'm an American, you see. And I think this largeness of spirit, this grandeur that is America, both in the scope of the country in geographical sense and the achievement of America in the sense of what we have seen in 20th century history, you know, we're going to put man on the moon, and they put the man on the moon. And whatever they determined to do, the, victor, the victorious power in the two great wars of, 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 of Europe, the, then the victorious power in the Cold War. This idea in the last 50 years as a result of the tragedy of the Vietnam War came under attack. By whom? By Americans themselves. So the Americans went through this bipolarity, I might say, of 20 years of internal debate that, you know, all the problems of ours. And so the whole question, you know, America was, of course, born with the Declaration of Independence where, you know, all men are created equal. And yet we know that it was half, half free and half slave. But the Americans fought to bring that idea into fruition, that all men are created equal. It was the that idea was that exactly. was created. It yeah. was the idea. Sometimes I think that the emblem for the United States, rather than being an, an eagle, much as the Romans had, it should be uh, the Ouroboros, because it seems to be swallowing its own tail and destroying itself. <laughs> Uh, you know, while it is great on the one hand, will its greatness, its freedom of speech, its its openness, allow for such a descent that it becomes destroyed? Well, the Americans have always had, uh, shall we say, rather excited politics. It's the Canadian joke. We call them the excited states of America. And all the rambunctiousness of this last presidential campaign, well, that's been seen before. And it's been worse. You know, you, you uh, look at uh, Jefferson versus Adams. You look at uh, uh, the elections uh, just before the Civil War, or worse, the elections after the Civil War, like uh, 1876, when Southern Democrats were killing black Republicans all over in uh, South Carolina and in Louisiana. You know, they've had uh, worse elections, but yet they always come back out of it. They bounce back. The, the particular challenge right now in, in the, the, the beginning of the Trump administration is can the, the sort of the, the toxic thinking of the last uh, 20, 30 years be removed? Uh, well, the, the rebellion of the citizenry says, yes, we want to try this, and let, let's see if actually they can accomplish it. You know, I often have a, I don't know if it's a problem um, trying to identify this feeling, but in a sense, like you say, America is an idea. 
It's a nation that's built on an idea rather than an ethnicity. And I feel American, even though I, I'm Canadian. I'm not an American because I embrace the ideas that created the United States and I live them here in Canada, which is, much like the United States, a very free country, as, as much the, of the Anglosphere is, as a lot of the world is. Have we actually adopted, and by, me, uh, by we I mean the rest of the world, the ideas that were born in the United States, born in England, born in the United States, um, have we actually adopted that? Are we all becoming Americans? Well, Silly, so we use the word American exceptionalism, and I'll, I'll point out that um, actually America doesn't have the highest standards of individual freedoms and human rights. In a lot of respects, they do not. That's correct. No. Um, in fact, actually, the, the style of government that seems best at consistently delivering those high standards is a parliamentary monarchy on the Westminster model. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, Canada, we, we Australia, <laughs> yeah, um, and also the Scandinavian countries. So, so there are other models, but the United States said, no, we, we can't have a monarchy, and I'd hate to think of someone who'd want the job. But we, as, as Canadians, I mean, I, it's not an unusual attitude for me. I'm very, very proud Canadian. I'm delighted to be a Canadian. Mm -hmm. But I want the United States to be prospering. I need to see the United States healthy. And for me, the world is right and safer when they have their confidence. And I want to see them get it back. Well, um, the great Englishman of the 20th century, possibly the greatest prime minister, uh, was Winston Churchill. And his very famous book was The History of the English-Speaking People. I read that as a teenager four volumes. So it was a history of the English-speaking people. And when he was writing it, by the way, Churchill, Churchill combined it to John. I mean, yes, remember his mother right. was an American, and yeah. his father was Randolph Chelsea from the aristocracy. It was a deliberate choice, if you now think about it, English-speaking people, which is the greatest English-speaking country. Not the little skipped isle of the bard, Shakespeare. It is America between the two oceans. It is the greatest speaking, English-speaking country. Um, and so, uh, in that sense, as, as, as we opened up and said, America represents the Enlightenment value, there is this tension between the notion of what we represent as Canada or Australia, that is the monarchy, uh, a constitutional monarchy, by the way, going all the way back to Magna Carta, and that tension is represented in the very nature of American constitution. The monarchy was defeated and George III was overthrown. But the president, remember, Washington could have become the monarch. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like going back to Julius Caesar. He mm -hmm. was offered the, the crown thrice and he thrice rejected it. So uh, uh, the, the American president is a monarch, by the way, but he's a monarch who is elected, because at that moment when he steps in and takes his oath of office, he is the monarch, and he surrounds himself with his barons, that is the cabinet, and he goes out to negotiate with the Congress, you see. Uh, the, the going out to negotiate with the Congress is again the playing out of the Magna Carta, 
you know, all the way back from you. So there is that tension. And sometimes the American president forgets that. He, he tries to be the imperial president, you know, the, the criticism about Nixon and others. Or Obama making all of those executive orders. Precisely. Or sometimes he turns and becomes a carter, an indecisive uh, president, a president so overtaken by his own sense of modesty that he will wear his uh, 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 sweater to, uh, to the White House as opposed to Reagan, you know, with his jacket and tie. I mean, this symbolic value, mm. and, and that is lost. So it's always the finding the balance, you know. And I think that is the legacy of the great English spirit. I wish to present Dr. Gulliver from a place he calls England. Your Majesty, I mean no harm to you or anyone. I want only to return to my own country. A boat is all I need. A boat? To join the enemy armada. A boat? To sink our navy? Oh, he's our enemy. I am not an enemy. I'm only different. That's the same thing, Gulliver. As different from your people as you are different, sire. You are unique and I am unique. Since you are unique and I am unique... We are the same. Which makes you a giant. You see, as cunning as our enemies, he'll blight our lives. Since we're the same, Your Majesty, and you have the freedom to move about and eat what you like, isn't it a terrible reflection on your equal to have him tied down and starving? It isn't safe to release this hurricane. Nonsense. We have our archers ready with their poisoned arrows, don't we? Oh, thousands. I trust the giant man's word. And so do I. I trust and have abiding faith in the integrity and reliability of any man that I can kill. Galbert, release his bonds, prepare to feed him. Release the giant! America is in many ways divided, like it's never been before. We're living in a time and age that we never thought possible before. The vicious barbarism we'd read about in history books, but never thought we'd see it in our so-called modern-day world. Who would have thought we would be witnessing what we're witnessing today? We've got to be very strong very, very smart, and we've got to come together, not only as a nation, but as a world community. Thank you very much. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're talking about making America great again, and what is it about America that a slogan like that could be used in a presidential election. Obviously, there has to be something great about it in the past and about it right now. But I'd like to bring it a little broader. I think that there's something great about the West and Western values, American values, Canadian values, Anglosphere values. Um, what is it about these particular values, characteristics, that has made the West, the United States, a target of criticism and both a power for good? I guess uh, it's an interesting book uh, by Victor Davis Hanson. It's called Carnage and Culture. 
uh, and it's military history, but it, it's sort of 13 reasons why the Western world has normally defeated any, everybody else that's come across at various times. And the main point, of course, is that we have a, a pattern of descent. You know, the unassailable god-king authority figure you find in other civilization models doesn't appear. Uh, what is apparent to the, to the West from the very beginning, as far as we can tell, is the notion that government is only possible with the consent of the governed. You know, that even uh, Caesar, who might have been uh, given divine honors by the Senate, had to be careful around his guards. You know, he could be replaced very easily. And, you know, the Sun King, again, uh, that wasn't a model that lasted very long and wasn't a very good one. So there's always the point that we govern ourselves. We give authority to those who govern over us. And if we dislike it, they go. And that, that's all right. We accept that. Tenant on that is the, the rule of law. Beyond that, we've got sort of the Judeo-Christian morality. We've got uh, the Greek spirit of inquiry, the Roman spirit of practicality, and the damnable energy of the Germans, all sort of blended and jumbled together over centuries, and this is what came out. So we're not just talking about the United States here when you mention these particular characteristics. You're well, talking about more the West? Well, more the West, but the, the United, uh, you started to get the, the Enlightenment, you know, coming out in, in the 18th century. And there, there are two real fruits of the Enlightenment. And one is the British parliamentary system, where you, you've got the monarch and the parliament, you know, more or less cooperating. But the other one is the American Republic. Most republics don't last very long. The American Republic I is the exception. It has lasted for a very long time uh, and seems quite stable. Although I suspect sometimes looking at it from the outside, it's that the president has given some of the appearance of a monarch without any of the actual practical powers of one. The, the chains that tie the elements of their constitution together have been frayed and rattled and tugged at, but that's always been the case. And even uh, despite what's happened under President Obama, those chains are still there. Salim? All of that I share with uh, John, and, but I would also add Again, you're talking about the modern time, a modern period in the sense. The 20th century history in coming into now the 21st century. America is possibly the most second to none innovative country in the world. The, this American spirit is the one that I can do something that you do, but I can do it better. This inherent competition is reflected in his art, in his music, in his culture, because again, it is a celebration of an individual, and the reward is also there for the individual. Well, this is the capitalist spirit, you might call it. This is, you might call it, you know, what many people have talked about, the creative destruction, Schumpeter in, in his way of defining capitalism. Well, those are all various ways to understand and grapple with this notion that America always regenerates itself. I think the Trump victory is an indication of that. It regenerated itself. The others saw that you can push and push and the people will take it, but the people will not take it. They were more waiting for a moment and then they gave. They gave the same people who voted twice for Obama and made him the president. That should have ended the whole question about America as a racist society. Nowhere else could an Obama-type man 
have won the election, you know, ethnically, you think, by color, yes. by so on and well, so forth. Well, of course, forth. only 15% of Americans are black. So if a black man gets to be president, obviously he got in by a white vote. Precisely. So that's what I'm, I'm pointing out, you know, and they gave him that. But then the, uh, Obama never himself understood. We have to get into Obama's biography. Obama did not grow up as an American. Obama was alien to the American culture. You know, he came as an adult and tried to, and then he was schooled by all the Reverend Wrights and, and all the uh, American-hating crowd, you know. And madrasas. That's, that's right. So coming back to the Native American, Native I use cautiously in the sense that whoever becomes American imbibes the American. It is the spirit of innovation. It is the spirit of creative. Look, Hollywood. I mean, the greatest, in a sense, in the popular culture, Hollywood is the greatest innovation, you know, the whole culture of cinema. The whole world looks at America through the lenses of Hollywood and wants to come to America, be part of America. And the themes of Hollywood, the stories that Hollywood have told over the last hundred years, you know, have captured the American history in celluloid. One of the most remarkable films, as I'm talking about this, that I, by the way, saw in Paris in a where in a in a studio where they play Hollywood movies, English movies, you know, in Paris. And I had an afternoon free, and I was walking down, and I saw it being advertised, and I and I went in to see it because I knew the film, but I hadn't seen it. Who killed Liberty Valance? That's an iconic, iconic movie. There it is. You know, the man who does kill Liberty Valance is in the shadow. The triumph of good and evil, the sense that in America good will triumph eventually, you know, and that sense is a religious sense, you know. America, by the way, is the last major Christian republic in the world, in the Western world, where the pews are getting empty in Europe, where Catholicism as the largest religion of, of its largest followers is now becoming more and more, you know, a third world religion in Africa, in Asia, and it is diminishing, and Latin America, and diminishing in, 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 in Europe. But America is the largest Christian, Catholic, non-Catholic, and, and people strongly believe in it, you know, and that was ridiculed by, again, the coastal elite. So this was part of, part of, again, the pushback. The man who you might say is the very exemplification of a hedonist lifestyle, if you just go by the smear that is Donald Trump, was embraced by the Christian evangelical. So it's interesting, you, you, you said that America is more than a country, it's a civilization and an idea. Are there any other countries that, that you would include in that oh, civilization? Absolutely. There are two or three and that immediately comes to mind. One is India. Yeah. Mm -hmm. India is not a country, it's a civilization. Mm -hmm. The other is China. Yep. So immediately you see that, you know, these are in, 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 in the modern but, but sense I meant, of country. I meant in the sense of, of West, what we would call Western civilization. You yeah. wouldn't include China in that then. No, you? no, Chinese civilization. Yeah. See, it China represents Chinese civilization. Right. And it is a country, right? It's a member of the UN and but so on. So the so. Chinese civilization goes in various different directions. You know, or talked about government only possible with the uh, consent of the governed. In China, uh, authority comes from the mandate of heaven. You have authority because you're strong enough to exercise it, and you dare not show weakness. And so, like, the Western world is always wobbling around on, if you were to create a stability meter, 
the needle is always wobbling in the West. In, in China, political sta stability well, is an either-or proposition. There, there, there was an example, I, I forget which one of you brought it up. You, you talked about the United States being the country of exceptionalism. They put the man on the moon, okay? Look at today. The United States isn't putting anybody on the moon. In fact, it's China that's doing it. It's Japan. It's some of the other countries. Is that a sign of the but U.S.? They're following. They're saying, look. Are they following or are they leading? I think they're following. Uh, and or I think the other point is that if the United States was to harness its energies again, go back into space, go to Mars, colonize Mars. Which they're talking about in a, in, in a uh, private sense almost. And it's not like the nation. Because actually, it. again, it's the United States that realizes that uh, after their long experiment with a bureaucracy in NASA, that you better turn space over to private yeah. enterprise. <laughs> like anything else, let's face it, including healthcare. Well, w w what I, I would say with the example that you pick, gave is that Americans lead the way and then others then pick up. And America is now opening up other avenues, you know. Uh, as, as I reflect on uh, modern history, that is, you know, somewhere post-American Civil War, so from somewhere around 1880s to our time, that is the making of the modern world, America has basically created the modern world, whether it was, you know, Thomas Edison with the electric bulb, whether it is Graham Bell mm -hmm. with the telephone, whether it is uh, Henry Ford with the internal combustion engine and, and, and motor cars, you know, whether it is the Wright brothers with the... Uh, plane that flies, so on and so forth, you know, to coming to our time, the PC, now, now the course, iPhone. The, I, I can tell you that one of the big <laughs> questions to what you're saying right now that yeah. I know younger people will ask, I, I think I know the answer, but a lot of younger people who are not aware of this background, even of Edison, they don't even know what nation he's from, the big question is why are all those people that you just mentioned why did they have to do that in America? Couldn't they have done it in Europe? Couldn't they, were, they have done it in, in another well, that, that's, in the but, States? But then you're talking, we're still using the word culture, and you can have a free culture and an unfree culture, and, or, or maybe the word civilization. I remember Ayn Rand always identified civilization as the pro prohibition of, of using a force in a society. That's when you're civilized, when you're not you know, leading with, with a gun all the time. Well, I'll, I'll answer that, Bob. Okay. First of all, it's not necessary to do that in the United States because to pick on Salim for just a moment here, Ford, for example, he was a master of automation. He didn't necessarily invent the internal combustion engine. The first car, I believe, was in France, Cugnot, uh, C-U-G-N-O-T, I think it's called. Yes. Um, aviation was not necessarily the Wright brothers. It was Albert Santos Dumont in, in Brazil who was a, a major pioneer in aviation. Uh, I think was, there was another one in Canada, Fessenden, I, I believe. So a lot of these ideas may not have originated in the United States, but it was certainly the economic powerhouse and the financial system of the United States which made their development possible. No, it's true. You, you look at the history. Britain was the world's driver in, in science. Well, sure, um, the steam engine was, was British. Um, Watt invented the steam oh, engine. Oh, I mean, uh, so many systems, especially the navigation uh, uh, with, with the, the Industrial Revolution that actually mm -hmm. began in Britain. Yes. And of course, uh, you also look at, say, uh, some of the ideas that more or less define the 20th century for good or for ill come out of Europe. You know, you know something, I, I would say that, absolutely correct, but what it is that about the United States that took these ideas and made them the way they are today is money. 
In the United States, you could be a millionaire. You could be a billionaire. Very difficult to do when you live under a system that taxes you to 75%, which the, uh, the British system did until, uh, just, uh, until Margaret Thatcher, I believe. They had a huge tax rate. So people who wanted to, do, who, to get money and to invest money and to invest in ideas went to the United States. Money is a, is a measure of worth. You know, you can put some other worth. I mean, the, uh, uh, it could be land ownership, you know, the Indians' land ownership, China land ownership. And that was what is feudalism in Europe. So it's, what is the measure? I come back to what distinguishes modern America or the making of America is, again, the celebration of the individual. You know, it is at the heart of it is that you untie the individual, which is the gift of man, God to man or whatever, however you want to phrase it. You know, I think it was Carl Sandburg who said that every child that is born is the way God is saying that, you know, the world should continue or, or something of that nature. It is in America that every child, at least in the sense of idea, is seen as if he's untrammeled, if he's left free, will flower and flourish. This is an idea that it doesn't exist in all civilization because India, China, these are civilization. These are all civilization. These are very structured civilization. And so in a structured civilization, the individual becomes simply the cog of the system that is in place until the system is completely broken up. Europe suffers from that. I think Europe is a schizophrenic society. You had the French Revolution just a few years after the American Revolution, and then look where the French Revolution went. It guillotined the monarch, and it created another monarch who had to be guillotined, Robespierre. So this back and forth between tyranny and freedom is the schizophrenic idea of, of Europe. Look what has the European Union become. It's again a top-down powerhouse trying to control each nation and people. You yeah, know? If you were to say make Europe great again, the first thing to do is to kick the EU out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But it could well be argued that given the absurdity of the whole European idea, that Brussels is in fact doing its best to defend the indefensible and to make the unworkable work. That is simply not true, Humphrey. Huh? I don't understand pompous, but the European idea is our best hope of avoiding narrow national self-interest. That doesn't sound pompous, Minister. Good. Merely inaccurate. <laughs> Listen, humble vessel. Europe is a community of nations dedicated towards one goal. Oh. <laughs> Maybe share the joke, Humphrey. No, Minister. <laughs> Let's look at this objectively. It is a game played for national interests and always was. Why do you suppose we went into it? To strengthen the brotherhood of free Western nations. Oh, really? We went in to screw the French by splitting them off from the Germans. <laughs> well, why did the French go into it, then? Well, to protect their inefficient farmers from commercial competition. It certainly doesn't apply to the Germans. No, no. They went in to cleanse themselves of genocide and apply for readmission to the human race. <laughs> such appalling cynicism. Oh, well, at least the small nations didn't go into it for selfish reasons. Oh, really? Luxembourg's in it for the perks. The capital of the EEC, all that foreign money pouring in. Hmm? Very sensible central location. With the administration in Brussels and the parliament in Strasbourg. <laughs> Minister, it's like having the, the House of Commons in Swindon and the civil service in Kettering. <laughs> the trouble with Brussels is not internationalism, it's too much bureaucracy. But the bureaucracy is a consequence of the internationalism. 
Why else would there be an English commissioner with a French director general immediately below him and an Italian chef de division reporting to the Frenchman and so on down the line? Oh, I agree. It's like the Tower of Babel. I agree. No, it's even worse. It's like the United Nations. I agree. Uh, then but perhaps, 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 if I may interject, you are in fact in agreement. No, no we're, we're not. Katarina! Che maravilla! Out of my way! Out of my way! Scusi, scusi! Katarina! Welcome! Welcome to America! can't stay here forever, Leonardo. Europe is your home. Europe is despicable. Here, I am free to do what I wish. Free from judgment, free to fail. Without a sense of shame, without, without the taunts of the ignorant. Leonardo, whether you want to admit it or not, they do need you back home. In Florence, Milan, Avignon, they need your genius, they need your heart. And right now, I need you too. So come on. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And thank you to all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience, many of which include our guests today on the show, Salim Mansour and John Thompson. And Salim, you were talking about, we talked earlier before the breaks about the moon and, and, and how these other countries are copying what America does. And in that copying, what I always found interesting in all these quote-unquote civilizations, they look across the ocean, they see America doing all these great things, and then, then they go to copy what they can, but they never copy the individual freedom. What's going on there? Who wants to tackle that well, one? Well, uh, again, I, I started by citing uh, Victor Davis Hanson, the, the classical historian, and, and it is rather disturbing book, Carnage and Culture. Mm-hmm. But he points out that a number of cases in the history of the Western world, you know, he, he's looking at battles like, say, Midway, where the Japanese turned up with aircraft carriers, you know, a very innovative new design, and so did the Americans. Uh, and the Japanese had actually better aircraft and, and so on and so forth. But you, so what you had was sort of technological parody. Um, the difference was the spirit of the Americans versus the spirit of the Japanese. And the Americans actually won the war because they were in, more inclined to innovate. They were more inclined to be flexible. Was it was it an inclination to innovate or an inclination to recognize what, what they had was this freedom, where at the, where the other side didn't? Maybe well, that was the motivating spirit. It was, it was a bit of both. Yeah. But you, you see, like the the Lexington going out with civilian damage control crews still on board, repairing the damage from the Coral Sea. At the same time, the, the Japanese. I mean, you had senior Japanese officers drown because they went back into their sinking ships to rescue the pictures of the emperor. Huh. Something <laughs> that would never have occurred to an American. You know, that, again, the, the Americans made every attempt they could to rescue their personnel, and the Japanese hardly did at all. You know, just the, the value. That's hard, that's hard for a lot of North Americans to relate to, you know, that? Even that, that, that mentality can exist at all. That, that utter Borg-like mentality. The, can, the kamikaze-type you know, yeah. attitude of yeah. the Japanese in the Second World War, yes. Um, you've also seen it in China. 
Um, mm. the, the Chinese, uh, I mean, Norman Bethune, it was a Canadian communist uh, and a doctor, um, tubercula, tuberculosis, and a little self-destructive. But he went over to China and you know, linked up with Mao's troops and sacrificed himself to save the lives of very ordinary Chinese guerrillas. And the Chinese couldn't get over that. You just, you just hit on it, John, and that word is sacrifice. The overarching philosophy of the United States is selfishness versus the selflessness of the altruistic collectivist nation that, like, for example, in, in Nazi Germany, in a Maoist China, where the individual is subservient to the will of the majority or the dictator. In the United States, the individual is sovereign. Well, I mean, we, we, we mentioned that the United States, that America represents the values of the Enlightenment. It's a child of the Enlightenment. We mustn't forget the age of enlightenment itself was a huge struggle. It was a several millennium struggle. It just wasn't born on the day that Newton proclaimed his four laws of motion. It's still going on. The, precisely. So, so you know, this is, uh, we, we put labels on things. And, and so, the, you know, whether it's selflessness or whether it is altruism or whatever you want to put it, we put labels on it. I mean, you know, what was the label that you were going to define sitting right now in the 21st century, the 300 at Thermopylae? who fought for, you know, Greece against the Persian, you know. And the notion of Greece was not there because that was the notion of Sparta and Athens and so on and so forth. But coming back to the framing question of Bob, I would say that civilizations, we are now talking in a largest context, uh, mm -hmm. as, uh, as Alfred Toynbee talked about, or most recently, Samuel Huntington talked about in, in The Clash of Civilization. Civilization as entity are defined by a certain worldview. And that worldview is then exemplified by religion or the myths that construct those religions. So take the case of India. India is sending now satellites into space and is trying to get to Mars and you know has a whole modern infrastructure. Uh, Indians want to be like Americans, you know. India is open to those ideas. But India is a civilization. India has a constitution which is modeled after the American and British constitution in terms of age of enlightenment, the value of individual. But India, as a worldview in Hinduism, is constructed on the notion of caste system. A child is born into a particularly defined caste and lives his or her life according to the values of the caste. So the Constitution says caste system is now obliterated. Anyone who follows the caste system is therefore uh, punishable, it, you know. But that is the legal system says that. The worldview is embedded in your genes, the, the cultural the culture. genes. So, so there must be a tremendous reconciliation that that Indians it find takes, themselves no, having so to it, make. What it means is the individual has to work itself out. The, the, the cultural or civilizational gene of America is the age of enlightenment because that was the formulation given in the Declaration of Independence. So you arrive. I mean, Tocqueville arrived. Tocqueville was an aristocrat. He would have been very much at home in India in a caste system. He would be the Brahmin, the highest caste, which is what he was in, in France or before the, before the revolution. 
But what did Tocqueville come and celebrate? He came and celebrated democracy in America. That is the landmark book written by an outsider. I can flip it over and point out to you that people who have come to America from other sides and have become American have been much more conscious of what American spirit is than an American who's born several generations in America. Take the case of the Irving Berlin. Take the case of, you know, those who came. Irving Berlin wrote the songs about America, you know. It became part of the American musical values, you know. Uh, the Jews who came to Americans, the, the Italians, the largest ethnic group in America are the Germans, you know. And in America, they came and celebrated. And they turned around in the end and fought the Germans in two world wars, you see. So I think this... America as a child of enlightenment is a civilization and a cultural idea that is open. The Japanese can become Americans in Jap as they do. I remember Senator Hayakawa of California who celebrated English and said, you know, this is America. You speak English and not Hispanic. You know, so uh, this, the sense of idea is unique, just as the Hindu civilization is unique based upon caste system, or the Chinese civilization is unique, Confucianism and the mandate of heaven. Uh, in the modern world, we are converging. And in this convergence, it is the American idea that is so much powerful because of those ingredients that we are talking about. If I wanted America to fail, to follow, not lead. To suffer, not prosper. To despair, not dream. I'd start with energy. I'd cut off America's supply of cheap, abundant energy. I couldn't take it by force. So I'd make Americans feel guilty about using the energy that heats their homes, fuels their cars, runs their businesses, and powers their economy. I'd make cheap energy expensive so that expensive energy would seem cheap. I would empower unelected bureaucrats to all but outlaw America's most abundant sources of energy. After banning its use in America, I'd make it illegal for American companies to ship it overseas. I would never teach children that the free market is the only force in human history to uplift the poor, establish the middle class, and create lasting prosperity. Instead, I'd demonize prosperity itself so that they will not miss what they will never have. And I would never have to worry about another Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, or Steve Jobs. I would ridicule as flat earthers those who urge them to lower energy costs by increasing supply. And when the evangelists of common sense try to remind people about the laws of supply and demand, I'd enlist a sympathetic media to drown them out. If I wanted America to fail, I would empower unaccountable bureaucracy seated in a distant capital to bully Americans out of their dreams and their property rights. Because I don't believe in free markets, I'd invent false ones. I'd devise fictitious products like carbon credits and trade them in imaginary markets. I'd convince people that this would create jobs and be good for the economy. America to fail. For every concern, I'd invent a crisis, and for every crisis, I'd invent the cause. If I wanted America to fail, I would transform the environmental agenda from a document of conservation 
to an economic suicide pact. I would concede entire industries to our economic rivals by imposing regulations that cost trillions. I convince Americans that Europe has it right and that America has it wrong. If I wanted America to fail, I would prey on the goodness and the decency of ordinary Americans. I would only need to convince them that all of this is for the greater good. If I wanted America to fail, I, I suppose I wouldn't change a thing. We were talking about American exceptionalism and what it took for a nation like the United States to go to the moon, to put a man on the moon in a simple nine, ten years. Not negating, of course, the fact that the rocket was invented by the Chinese, it was developed by the Germans, and um, it, it was pointed to the United States by, by the Russians and Tsiolkovsky, and the first man in, in space was a Russian. But it was the American exceptionalism, the American freedom, the American economy, capitalism, a strong-willed president like John F. Kennedy who could take those disparate ideas and directions, put them into focus, and land a man on the moon, not just once but several times. When we talk about making America great again, are we talking about going to the past that put a man on the moon? Or are we talking about America today, which is not, you know, of German extraction anymore, which is not blue-eyed and blonde-haired. It is multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, um, multi-ideological in a lot of sense. Can America be great again, given the change in its demographics, John? Well, I think what you've seen in the last 20 or 30 years but, uh, has been a, a concentric attempt to destroy that American spirit, bringing in, like, multiculturalism when it, it is not about a celebration of a sort of the cosmopolitan spirit, but it's creating ethnic voting blocks. You're always going to have a, a divided political system. The, the infiltration and the corruption of the education system. I mean, intellectually, they've destroyed a generation of youth. You just look at these people who are, you know, whinging about their trigger words and their safe spaces, and they're only really fit for a career in custodial sciences. Making America great is to take all of that stuff and sweep it away. And the point is, a central fact that America, like the Western world, is no longer a white world. We've come too far for that. But on the other hand, it's not about what you look like, it's about what you think like and how you're educated. And basically, anyone can think that way. You know, if you embrace American culture and you ignore all this fuss about your eye color and your skin complexion and embrace the whole culture, you can do anything, too. Well, as I always like to say, it's not the color of your skin. It's the color of your ideas. Exactly. A and in that sense, I think a lot of ethnic groups that are, are resentful of America are seeing it as a, as a racial divide. The fact that Western civilization has been white is part of the rejection of the whole European uh, Western civilization, well, and they always want to retell history from a, from a whole different point of view. You've got the politics of division, and you've got people in that environment who derive their income, derive their influence, oh, yeah, derive sure. their authority from playing that division. And I think the best thing Trump can do is find a way, and the best thing we can do is find a way to uh, select these individuals and defund them. We don't need to hear from them.
Hmm. And we need to have everyone uh, given the equal, same access to engineering schools and to mathematics and uh, to capital that's actually available to reinforce new ideas. And when we do that, we can take off again. And I say we, I just don't mean the United States alone. Understood. Well, my thoughts are, and I go back to my opening remark, make America great again is to let this Gulliver, this American, once again rise up and stand up. And so when we then analyze who this Gulliver is, this Gulliver is 75% white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired. To deny that fact is to run away from, you know, the, the reality. And then the rest is 25%. The blacks, 13%, the Hispanic, 8%, the growing Asian population, all of that is mixed. And to say that the 75% is going to be privileged, that's not what Make America Great Again is all about. It is just the reverse, because what has happened in this multicultural world that was being constructed by the Democratic Party, the politically correct intellectuals and so on and so forth, of which we, Canada, are, of course, both the victims and also the, the ones that who put forth this idea in the world, is that they created a privileged group. You are a black man, you're a privileged group. You're Hispanic, you're a privileged group. You're a woman, you're a privileged group. You're transgender. You're so there are all these privileged groups, and they have to be celebrated. Their stories have to be told. They have to be provided for special safe spaces. And then the majority, 75%, are the ones who's to be mocked. You see, that is what I think the Make America Great Again is the reversal. It was not, America would not be great and free if the 75% ran America like Indian in the caste system has run America or the Chinese have run America, or the, or the Russians ran, you know, the feudal and so on. The whole concept of America, it just so happened that the 75% now was at one time 90%, one time, you know, more than 90%, but as the demographic change has taken place, the seed of American idea was in this block of people. It was not somewhere else. It was not in Africa. It was not in Latin America. I recall the great uh, Mexican poet and writer and Nobel laureate, Octavio Paz, saying that, you know, as a Mexican, this is the trauma of the, the Mexican. And he was saying this in a descriptive sense, is, and, and that would hold for the Latin Americans too, but for Mexican, they're so far from God that they're so near to America. <laughs> <laughs> in the space, and, and America dominates their mind, and America dominates their presence. So yes, but you can't help it. It's, you know, Gulliver is Gulliver. The seven-foot basketball player is a seven-foot basketball player. There was a term that they, the Americans used to use, and they don't use it very often anymore, and that is America was a melting pot. The yeah, idea the of the melting pot, pot was that your exactly. race, your ethnicity, your history, your Absolutely. culture, and all that blended into an American ethos. And Absolutely. you look at the, the cultures that really define the world, change yeah. the world in major ways. Rome was a melting pot. Britain, especially like 19th century London, was a melting pot. You had all these other features, but it was also a place. I mean, Benjamin Disraeli, a Maltese Jew, becoming Prime Minister of England in the middle of the 19th century. Are they are the British really that race obsessed? Of course, one of our other modern advantages uh, is that we now have the genetic maps of the world. 
we can look at the different human haplotypes and everything else and sort of see what, what groups of people are around. And one thing is that people who think, uh, uh, define their identity by their ancestry, by their, their race, are in for disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Nobody is who they think they are. Exactly. Humans paddle around in each other's gene pools, and we do that all the time. The, the Canadian notion but of multiculturalism is destructive to the American dream. It's destructive. It's destructive to our to, dreams. To our dream in Canada, of course. Yeah. And people like part. Justin Trudeau, if he's trying to pander this idea of a cultural um, equivalency, then he is going to be a, uh, a block well, to I, anybody I who the, wants to make uh, America great again or Canada great. The point I was coming around to is that actually ethnic identity does not define civilization or it doesn't have to. Language, culture define uh, civilization. And language and culture can be taught. And you can teach yourself language. And you can adopt a culture. And the civilization is there for to be picked up by anyone who wants to take it's it. It's true. Language and culture are choices yeah. that a person can uh, work on. Yeah. Your ethnicity, no. And, and languages and cultures are not equal. The reason the English language has been so successful is because the English language is so flexible and so accommodating of other languages by borrowing and by growing, uh, which, you know, in 18th century Europe, 19th century Europe, French was the language of diplomacy and of a high culture. You didn't, it didn't matter whether you were in Moscow or you were in Vienna or you were in Paris. You were part of the elite and you spoke French. But what has happened? It's English that has become the, the largest English-speaking country in the world, by the way, is which country? India. India, yeah. exactly. So, and that's the legacy of, I mean, I keep pointing out to my students that modern India is the legacy of Queen Victoria. It's not the legacy of the ancient Indian emperors and civilization. Indeed. And culture is also, it can't be locked down. It has to grow. And what we've seen, again, in the United States and in the Western world for the last 34 years is an attempt to lock culture, insert new elements artificially, and freeze it. And culture has to be free. Interesting. And so this is the point. President Trump, blow political correctness to dust bunnies. Yeah. Culture has to be free. Thank you, John, and thank you, Salim, for joining us again. I don't think we can make uh, perhaps America uh, great again, but thanks to the presence of yourselves and other guests, we are certainly able to make radio great again. And we'll continue doing that again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. I am a good European. I believe in the European ideal. Never again shall we repeat the bloodshed of the two world wars. Europe is here to stay. But this does not mean that we have to bow the knee to every directive from every little bureaucratic Bonaparte in Brussels. We are a sovereign nation still. We are British and proud of it. enough concessions to the European Commissar for Agriculture and when I say Commissar I use the word advisedly. We have bowed and scraped and doffed our caps, tugged our forelocks, 
and turn the other cheek, but I say enough is enough. <laughs> the Europeans have gone too far. They are now threatening the British sausage. They want to stand it up. By which they mean they'll force the British people to eat salami and bratwurst and garlic-ridden, greasy foods. <laughs> they turned our pints into litres and our yards into metres. We gave up the tanner, the threepenny bit, the two-bob piece and the half-crown, but they cannot and will not destroy the British sausage. 